It's great to be here. And uh, this morning, uh, I brought with me some green tea onto the stage. Um, and people thought that it was something else. I won't tell you what. But, uh, so I thought it'd be safer tonight to bring my water. And uh, the reason that I have uh, brought this with me is because, I don't know if you can hear or not, I've had a bit of a sore throat uh, this past week. And um, don't worry, it's not COVID. I've done all the tests, it's fine. Um, but anyway, my wife, uh, she very kindly went out and brought... Um, some of these honey and lemon menthol flavor lozenges and they're wonderful things um, but we got talking and we agreed uh, that it must be rather lonely uh, for fishermen uh, if a fisherman's friend is a cough sweet <laughs> well today we're going to be thinking about friendship especially within the context of suffering and one of my uh, functions in my role as a pastoral work is to try to encourage us in our care for one another. We're called to make sense of life together, to share the love of Jesus. This is our church mission statement. And caring for one another, this is not uh, the work of the few, but of all of us. We all have a part to play. Now, it's been uh, 21 months, can you believe it, since I uh, preached the first message uh, in this series in Job, almost two years ago. And fast forward through the pandemic to today, and our world is filled with people who are grieving, who are lonely, who are confused, afraid, perhaps feeling hopeless. People who are in desperate need of a friend. Now, uh, my daughter's name is not Amy, it's Amy. A lot of people get that mistaken. Uh, that's actually a, a common Japanese name, uh, but also I'm half French, and so we thought we'd try and be clever. And uh, if you are good at French, you'll know that Amy, mon ami, means friend, my friend. And that's really our, uh, our heart and our prayer for her life, that she would be a friend to people. But with the world of social media, uh, the term friend often can be used loosely these days, can't it? And I wonder how long it will be until uh, a common Japanese practice is seen here in our country. And that's where lonely souls, after work, uh, they go out and they rent a friend. How incredible is that, is that? They pay somebody money by the hour to be their friend. And other people who don't do that uh, maybe go to eat at a restaurant by themselves. In some certain places, they can request uh, that a stuffed toy sits on the other side of the table so that they don't feel so lonely. Now, <laughs> it's funny in a way, but it's desperately sad because this is true. This really happens. And after all, cat cafes are already a thing, so watch this space. It could be coming to the UK. Uh, Proverbs 17, 17, it says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, not just in the good times, not just when you pay them to, but all the time, including, and perhaps especially in times of adversity. As the saying goes, when the chips are down, we find out who our real friends are. Now, if loving at all times is the definition of friendship, then I put my hands up, I confess that I don't measure up very well. 
How about you? And we can probably all think of people we consider or considered to be our friends who have or still do let us down. And instead of being the ones who comfort us, they actually inflict the deepest wounds. It's true, isn't it, that those who are closest to us, that these are the ones who often hurt us the most, and we, in turn, likewise. The psalmist says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So where can we find a friend who loves us at all times and will comfort us in our greatest calamity? And how can we aspire to be such a friend to others, especially in their hour of need? Well, this is our theme as we uh, look in on Job's three friends who come to comfort him, albeit miserably, in a lesson of how not to do pastoral care. So to recap the story of Job, it's been a long time since we were here, well, maybe you weren't there. Job was a prosperous man. He was not a Jew. He lived in probably modern-day Saudi Arabia. And he was known as blameless and upright. Uh, not absolutely righteous, but relatively so compared to others. And we look in on a conversation in the heavenlies uh, between God and Satan with our proverbial hands over our mouths. Because God asked Satan if he has considered his servant Job because there is none like him in all the earth. And Satan in turn asks for and gets God's permission to smite Job, but not to kill him. Because he thinks that Job can be made to curse God and in so doing to demonstrate that his worship is fickle. Job had been faithful to God in plenty and in pleasure, but would he be so in pain? In the space of one day, raiders capture his oxen, his donkeys, his camels, they slay his servants, fire consumes his sheep and his shepherds, and a tornado collapses a building that crushes all 10 of his children to death. Not only that, but shortly after, Job is afflicted with terrible boils on his skin. In these tragedies, though, he keeps his faith and reveres God. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return, he says. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, the book of Job is not a blueprint for suffering, but we can learn from it nonetheless. And perhaps the most common question that people ask when they're going through hardship is, why does God allow suffering? We've all heard that question lots of times, haven't we? And if you want to know the answer, then I'd encourage you to come to Alpha this Wednesday. Kath, is that you or is it Donald? Donald. Donald will tell you the answer. Why does God allow suffering? And in a nutshell, there isn't always an easy answer. Job never understood why he suffered. God never gave him an explanation. And that silence speaks volumes. The troubles that we face can seem mindless and baffle our sense of justice. And that's why the book of Job is so relevant for us today. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, everything has gone pear-shaped. But despite the presence of evil, of suffering, and of sin, 
God is God and God is good all the time. He always has been and he always will be. He is the governor of the universe and everything that happens is ultimately permitted by him. Satan does not have a parallel role to play to God, but a subordinate one. And God overrules his intentions for his own wise and holy purposes. God is never the author of evil, and yet he planned for it. We can't fathom how, but he did. And it's only because he is bigger than and before and beyond all things that we can trust in God and in his promise that he will ultimately work all things together for the good of those who love him. So we're going to be looking or skimming rather over a very large uh, chunk of the book of Job and uh, not necessarily in order. So if you want to read the whole uh, text, you can find it between chapters 2 and 31. So that's what um, the, the majority of the book, about 29 chapters. And just to say, it's quite difficult to work through all of the speeches that are there because they contain a mixture of truth and falsehood. And it just goes to show, doesn't it, that we need to be careful uh, not to take individual Bible verses out of context because we can end up in all kinds of trouble. So back to the story. And surely Job has passed Satan's test. I mean, he didn't curse God but rather he praised him and he demonstrated in so doing that God was his most precious treasure, even more precious to him than his family, his finances, and his skin. So why doesn't the ending of the book arrive now? Well, clearly Job has still got a lot to learn about God and about suffering, and so do we. And perhaps if God had restored his fortune so soon... Job's story would feel inauthentic to those who experienced the woes of life that seemed to drag on and on without end. I'm allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me, Job says. Now, not to compare our suffering uh, to his, but after all the lockdowns we had or still have to endure, perhaps we can relate somewhat to that feeling of drawn-out misery. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And get this, no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. History and God himself have criticized Job. And so will I. Job's friends, rather, not Job. But it's important and only right to say that they did really well to begin with until they opened their mouths. So how did they do well? Let's look at the good points. Even though they were from far away places, they'd maintained close enough connections to Job and to one another to hear his news and to make an appointment to come to his aid. And this was before the internet existed. <laughs> 
An old classmate of mine uh, saw me in Sutton a few weeks ago. We went to secondary school together, and we'd not seen each other, get this, for 18 years, even though he lives in Four Oaks. It's so easy to lose touch with people, isn't it? The friends also traveled to see Job. They didn't just pray or Zoom. They literally went the extra mile to come and to be with him. After all those months of having to isolate, it's fabulous to be able to start meeting with people and to be able to come here to church together. But it is a precarious time, and many people still understandably don't feel ready for that, as we can see from the empty seats here. So I just want to say to those who are watching uh, from home that we love you and we care about you and we really look forward to the time when you feel ready to come back and join us. And when the friends reached Job, they showed appropriate emotion and solidarity with him. Forget British stiff upper lip. It is fitting to express our feelings wholeheartedly. Jesus wept. The shortest and one of the most profound verses in the Bible. It's appropriate that in seeking to care for others, that we move beyond just sympathy and empathy to showing compassion. Sympathy is to feel pity. Empathy is to understand. But compassion is to embrace, to get alongside someone in validating their pain and reassuring them that they are not alone. To mourn with those who mourn. And for one whole week, Job's friends sat with him day and night and didn't say a word. That is quite incredible, don't you think? It's probably a miracle for a lot of us to not speak for one hour, let alone a week. But our quiet presence in someone's time of crisis can say more than a thousand words. My friend Dione's wife died aged 31 a few years ago, and I didn't know what I could say to him. There is nothing you can say in a tragedy like that. Now, in moments of calamity, some people are known to have exerted superhuman strength, like lifting cars to free somebody, a loved one who's trapped underneath. And perhaps Job, in the shock of his day from hell, was enabled to draw upon emergency reserves of faith. But just as adrenaline wears off, so the months of anguish and misery finally take their toll on him. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Why did I not die at birth, he asks. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not? Job wishes he'd never been born which of course is a protest against God because as he himself said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Maybe some of us here have had thoughts of wishing that we had never been born, of not wanting to go on living. Later on, Job even asks God to kill him. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. It's an important aside to state that even though Job longs for death, he rejects suicide as an escape from his pain. 
And this pain was grounded in not only his great loss, but also in what appeared to be God's inexplicable anger and perceived injustice. It is all one, therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Now, some of us in our childhood may have used a, a magnifying glass to frazzle ants. Does anybody want to admit to doing that? We had a few people this morning, one over there. <laughs> well, Job, he sees God in much the same way, smiting whomever he wills. He acknowledges a few times that he is not perfectly sinless, but is perplexed as to why his suffering far exceeds that of others. Job therefore thinks that God has abandoned him, that for no good reason God is no longer on his side, no longer his friend. Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. Our hearts are all prone to doubting God's love for us and for judging his affections by our circumstances. In Job's pain and confusion, though, he expresses his anger at and to God and even demands that God explain himself. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favour the designs of the wicked? He's torn me in his wrath and hated me. He's gnashed his teeth at me. I desire to argue my case with God. And toward the end of the story of Job, God does turn up, and we'll look at that uh, in future messages. And he puts Job in his place for demanding an explanation and demanding to be vindicated. And in response to this, Job repents. But then, and perhaps to our confusion, God says finally that Job has spoken rightly about him. How can this be? Eric Ortland explains, even as he curses, Job's theology is good in the sense that Job rightly values God and his favor more highly than any earthly blessing. He shows that even an ideal life loses its appeal without the friendship of God. Although not everything he says stands up to the Lord's challenge, Job is speaking rightly about God when he places God above all the privileges he used to enjoy. And despite Job's criticizing God, God doesn't stop or interrupt him, but gives him space to vent. Psalm 62 says, Trust in him at all times, you peoples. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I love that. God is big enough and wants for us to be real with him. And what's the point of trying to hide from the one who already knows everything that we are thinking and feeling? And in crying out to God, we come to the one who can protect and heal our hearts, even in the midst of our suffering. After sitting quietly for a whole week, Job's outcry gives Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar the perceived permission and ammunition to unzip their lips. 
Remember that we are told that the three men genuinely intended to support Job. But before long, he says to them, miserable comforters are you all. And the friends essentially make the same point over and over again. And it goes something like this. Job, if you are suffering, then it is because you are being judged and punished by God for your sin. So stop whinging, repent, and things will get better. But we know that this was not true. Job was not being afflicted for his sin. His friends, though, are convinced otherwise, because in their minds it's a simple equation. The righteous prosper, and the wicked suffer. Sound familiar? The prosperity gospel in all its shapes and sizes, has millions of followers around the world, all in the name of Jesus. Christ died and rose again so that we can be set free from the bondage of suffering. That's the gist of it. After all, what loving father wouldn't want the earthly best for his children? Name it and claim it. Believe you have received. Sickness and poverty are not befitting of followers of God. So if as a Christian you are not walking in health and wealth, well, the problem is probably with your faith. But this is unbiblical. This is dangerous and this is damaging. Now the ironic thing is that the prosperity gospel is actually true in eternity. For then the righteous shall indeed prosper and the wicked suffer. But to insist upon it now is to over-realize the fulfillment of God's covenant blessings. It is only in heaven that sin and suffering will be fully and finally done away with for all of God's children. Just to be clear, that financial provision and physical well-being are wonderful gifts and means by which we can serve God's kingdom. But they are not the barometer of God's care for us, nor are they the only conditions in which God can and may want to use us. The Apostle Paul said, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So Eliphaz speaks first, and he begins by having a go at Job for being so upset. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. This was unnecessary and insensitive. Think now, who that was ever innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I've seen those who plough iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. This is karma. You're getting what you deserve. And then he insinuates that Job hasn't considered turning to God yet. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. How patronizing. Bildad is even harsher. If your children had sinned against him, he's delivered them into the power of their transgression. How about that for comfort? Job, your children were killed because they were guilty of sin. If you will seek God and make supplication to the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and reward you with a rightful habitation. And so far he repeats the party line, but takes it to another level. 
Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You should really be getting punished way more severely than this, Job, so quit complaining. Wow. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. And so their argument goes on. But Job does not agree. He doesn't understand why he is suffering, but he knows that it's not because of his wickedness. In fact, it's often the wicked who seem to prosper. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Worthless physicians are you all. And the friends don't take kindly to this. But because they have no other tune to sing, they revert to singing it with more gusto. And Eliphaz, in desperation, even stoops as low as making up false accusations. It's not your evil abundant. There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. There is no substance to these words, though. And the three friends' theology soon loses its voice. It can't sustain itself to the end. Their simplistic principle of justice does not hold. And in wanting to be right, even though they were wrong, they completely lost sight of their purpose of wanting to support Job. They lost sight of love. Now, I remember a long time ago, 12 years ago, in fact, when I was an intern here, there was another intern called Shannon. And one day, she was upset about something. And me, wanting just to help, I quickly thought of some Bible verses, and I wrote them out, and I gave them to her. And I remember what she said still to this day, and it's been helpful for me to hold on to. She said, Dan, I don't need you to fix me. I just want you to listen. When people are hurting, they usually just want to be heard. Our words can do great damage, but even if they are good, right, and true, they can still sting like salt in a wound. So be quick to listen, slow to speak, James said. And Proverbs says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Joseph Bailey was a Christian writer who had three children who died in infancy. And in his book, The View from a Hearse, he writes, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealing, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. And in Job's first speech, he wished he had never been born. 
And whenever he spoke of death, he, he referred to it as something final. But as he contended with the superficial thinking of his friends, his faith gradually began to rise. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, he says. And by chapter 14, he asks a question. If a man dies, shall he live again? And in chapter 19, he reaches his answer. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Job despaired at the thought that God was angrily judging him, but eventually became convinced that this was not so, and that beyond the grave he would meet with God as his Redeemer that he would be set free from all his misery, even if it would only be after he had died. And that confidence does not answer all of his questions, but Job sees hope that enables him to look beyond the suffering that engulfs him. And as we know, God did afterward come to this world of trouble as the redeemer of all who will believe in him. Think now. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Remember, those were the words of Eliphaz. He was sure that no one undeserving of punishment could ever suffer. But Jesus proved him wrong. The sovereign and holy God became a suffering and humble man and lived the life of Job to the ultimate conclusion. Job was relatively righteous. He was an upright man in comparison to others. But Jesus was absolutely righteous, the only person who has ever and will ever live a perfectly obedient life unto God. Job's friends did a miserable job of comforting him in his time of need. But Jesus was betrayed, abandoned, and denied by those closest to him. Job wrongly believed that he had been forsaken by God. But Jesus actually was. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Job asked God to put him to death to relieve his temporary suffering. But Jesus willingly gave his life and was indeed killed by God to relieve the eternal suffering of many others. In our times of darkness and distress, what a comfort it is to know that God has not and will not abandon us, but walks with us. That he knows what it is to suffer even unjustly. That he sustains and strengthens us in the troubles that we face. That he takes our brokenness and works it for good. And that he promises us that our pain is for a moment, for a glorious end and a new beginning awaits his people of faith. Because of Jesus, we have a redeemer who lives, who conquered sin and death. And that means that we have hope. And that makes life worth living. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, 
He referred to his disciples for the first time as his friends. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Now, our experience of earthly friendships are messy and imperfect because we are messy and imperfect people. There is, though, a friend in heaven who loves at all times, a brother who was born for adversity. Jesus was known to be a friend of sinners, and he died and rose again to reconcile sinful and suffering people like us to himself. God shows his love for for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amazing grace that God would not only offer us forgiveness, but invite us to intimacy, to be friends of the Almighty, the one who knows and loves us perfectly. And what a friend to have. But because of God's holiness and because of our sin, you must know God as an enemy before you know him as a friend, Martin Luther says. Have you made peace with God through faith in the living Redeemer? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In an age where friends come and go and one can be lost at the click of a button, how reassuring to know that God will never unfriend his people. And this relationship transforms us to walk in growing obedience unto God by the power of his Holy Spirit that indwells us, moving us toward loving others as he loves us. Joseph Scriven was engaged to be married, but on the night before their wedding, his fiancée fell off her horse while crossing a bridge to meet him, and sadly she drowned in the river below. In his grief, though, he encountered God. Years later, Joseph got news that his mother was extremely poorly, and he was inspired to write a poem born out of his own experience of suffering called Pray Without Ceasing, which was then set to music and became this famous hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. 
take it to the Lord in prayer? Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Saviour, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Because Joseph had experienced the comfort of Jesus in his own suffering, he was able to comfort others in theirs. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now by the end of the book of Job, the tables are turned around and Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, they find themselves in hot water with God for the wrong that they had spoken about him. And though they had failed Job miserably in his time of need, Job was a friend to them in theirs and he prayed for them for God to show them mercy. I've got some questions for us to reflect upon and maybe think about as we leave from here tonight. I'll just read them out briefly. Do we know Jesus as our friend? And if so, how is our life reflecting this? Who have we lost touch with that God is putting on our hearts to re-establish contact? Is there anyone we know who is suffering in some way who may be in need of our presence and care? How can we move beyond showing sympathy and empathy for the hurting to being compassionate? Do our words lift others or ourselves up? In what ways do we try to fix people rather than pointing them to our saviour? How easy is it for us to agree to disagree with other believers for the sake of love and unity? And finally, are there any beliefs we hold to about God that we need to re-question in light of his word? Let us move towards suffering in love and not away from it in fear. To walk with one another through the valleys as well, on the, as well as on the mountaintops and not to give up on our friends when things get hard or we get hurt. For Christ laid down his life for us. Our words can heal, but they can also wound. So let us think before we speak and be humble enough to admit that we don't have all the answers. We can't fix people. But in caring for one another, we point to our Redeemer who can, because he lives. God wants us to each pour out our hearts to him in prayer. He won't necessarily explain to us our suffering, or even remove it as soon as we would like him to. 
but he will give us his comfort for ourselves and to share with others. Friends, what a friend we have in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice at the outrageous mercy and kindness you've shown us in Christ, Lord, that we, those sinners, we who've rebelled against you and your holiness, Lord, that you've made a way for us to be saved, that we can come to you boldly and with confidence, all because of Jesus, because of your great love for us, because of his sacrifice on the cross, because of his death and resurrection. We can know that our Redeemer lives and, Lord, that you live in us. We thank you, Father, that you will never abandon us, but that you promise to be with us. And, Lord, that your grace is sufficient for each and every day, for each and every need, Lord. We can depend on you, and we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we have hope that moves beyond this life and looks to heaven. Lord, we pray that you would use us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in this evening. Lord, that you would use us for your kingdom purposes, that you would show us, Lord, who it is you want us to comfort with the comfort that you've given to us. We pray, Lord, that we would press into you and we would be receiving of your love each and every day, that out of the overflow, we could be part of your purposes in this world, Lord, this world that is broken and hurting. Lord, that we can join with you, that we can be your vessels in pointing people to Jesus and in sharing your love with them. So, Father, we give you our praises. We thank you. We thank you for your love, your faithfulness, your power, your majesty. Lord, you are a friend at all times. You are our brother in our adversity. And we give you our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.